Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Friday, August 12th, 2022. It's been 3,086 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27th, 2014, and 170 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth because the truth matters. As always, let's start with some assessment of the current status of the war. First, we're reading reports from Zaporizhia to Izum of growing personnel shortages among Russian, Donetsk People's Republic, and Luhansk People's Republic military units, crippling offensive capabilities. Second, Chechen forces have become conspicuously absent in Ukraine since mid-July, after reports claimed that Kadyrovites suffered catastrophic losses in Severodonetsk. Third, the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has become a political crisis as experts decry the Russian occupation of the plant and warn of the growing possibility of a nuclear disaster. Fourth, Ukrainian forces continue to advance toward Izum as the first line of Russian defenses established in May has crumbled. The situation is reaching a tipping point where the word counteroffensive should be used. Finally, Russian military leaders have returned to the doctrine of destroying an area to dust to achieve political victories disguised as military successes. Unlike Severodonetsk, a city that once housed 130,000 people, it is taking the Russian military to destroy all traces of Pisky, a town that once housed 2,000. Let's take a look at some regional updates. We'll start in the Donbass region with the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova Triangle. Ukrainian forces pushed Russian troops out of Ivano-Derivka and through the Spirna no-man's land. Russian Air Force Su-25 ground-attack aircraft fired on Ukrainian troops in Spirna. There were additional strikes on Bilohorivka in Donetsk and Vimka west of Ivano-Derivka. On August 11th, we assessed that the increase in ground combat on the same day was caused by the Kremlin trying to send a message to delegates attending Rammstein 5 in Copenhagen, Denmark, and Russian military leaders probing for weaknesses in Ukrainian defenses. There will continue to be sporadic fighting in this region, but we don't anticipate renewed significant combat operations before the fall mud season begins. Fighting for Bakhmut continued, led by private military company or PMC Wagner Group, and supported by terrorist elements of the Imperial Legion of Russia and separatists of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR. Since July 4th, Russian forces have advanced approximately 10 kilometers in this region, mainly in the Svitlodarsk bulge, which is almost collapsed. It is the region with the most progress since the Russian Ministry of Defense announced an operational pause on July 5th, which lasted 13 days. 
PMC Wagner took control of the Naufgips drywall factory on the eastern edge of Solidar and was fighting on the eastern edge of the gypsum mine supported by the Russian Air Force. Unable to advance in that direction, they tried to flank Ukrainian troops with an attack on Bakhmutska, but were unsuccessful and fell back to previously established defensive lines. Volunteers were evacuating civilians under fire from Russian forces. The remaining civilians in Solidar ignored a government-issued mandatory evacuation order issued on July 30th. PMC Wagner continued attempts to advance on Yakovlivka and Bakhmut and tried to capture the western half of Vershina, but was unsuccessful. LNR separatists probed Ukrainian defenses in Vesela Dolina, discovered those defenses were effective, and retreated. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, fighting for control of Dacha, Kodema, and Zaitseve continued. Our assessment here is unchanged from August 9th. You can find it on Tuesday's episode around minute 5 and 52 seconds. In southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia, the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic, a.k.a. the DNR, continued its offensive to capture Pisky, shifting to Soviet-era World War II tactics. Russian forces supporting DNR separatists used a TOS-1 multiple launch rocket system, or MLRS, to fire thermobaric weapons into a block of previously destroyed apartment buildings north of the ponds that divide Pisky. A video from Russian state media showed 19 explosions. The target area was geolocated and stuck in an area we had assessed was directly on the line of conflict. Based on the information provided in the video, we updated the map reducing the amount of area under Russian control. Shifting to assessment for a moment, in the Luhansk Oblast and Mariupol, the Russian Ministry of Defense used the same strategy they adopted during World War II. Use artillery and rockets to bomb an area to rubble and send light infantry forward. If the light infantry is attacked, accept the losses and repeat the process in the morning. This method of attritional warfare destroys cities, towns, and villages. Once nothing is left to defend, the opposing force retreats, and Russian troops declare victory in the dust. Over the last two weeks, DNR military leaders have shifted their strategy three times in Pisky. They attempted direct frontal assaults, which resulted in advancing units suffering heavy losses. Then they attempted to flank Ukrainian positions, but the units involved had become combat ineffective and couldn't move the line of conflict. World War II Russian General Yorgi Zhukov would recognize today's tactics of indiscriminate artillery and rocket fire, supported by airstrikes and a failed advance by exhausted DNR forces probing Ukrainian defenses. The shift in strategy to the indiscriminate use of thermobaric weapons indicates that DNR military leaders have decided to capture Pisky at all costs. In the simplest terms, wars are won by destroying your enemy's ability to fight and capturing and integrating the civilian population. Fighting attritional battles with tit-for-tat losses and capturing rubble that has been blasted to dust does an excellent job of moving black lines and yellow patches on war maps. If you're fighting a total war with a goal of genocide, this is how wars are won. The Kremlin has said since February 23rd that the, quote, special military operation was about liberation. Destroying everything people need to survive, along with their culture and forcing them to flee, is not how a sincere liberator would define winning. DNR and Ukrainian forces fought positional battles in Avdivka, 
but there was no change in the situation. The lull in fighting is likely short-lived while separatist militias look for ways to replace combat losses. Elements of the 1st Army Corps also attempted to advance on Marinka and were unsuccessful. Russian and Ukrainian forces fired artillery, mortars, and rockets from MLRS from Horlivka to Donetsk City to Velika Novosilka in the Donetsk Oblast, and Hulia Pol to Orkhiv to Kamyansk in Zaporizhia. Russian forces made another attempt to advance on Pavlivka and were unsuccessful. Some quick assessment, we believe that DNR forces will capture Pisky and use the tactical victory as a propaganda win. We don't believe the tactical gain can be exploited before the start of mud season. The goal of securing the Donetsk Oblast by August 31st is unsustainable. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, there wasn't any significant fighting northwest, north, northeast, or southeast of Kharkiv. Russian and Ukrainian forces traded sporadic artillery, rockets fired from MLRS, and indirect tank fire across the line of conflict. Yesterday's report of the sound of loud explosions near Kharkiv was Ukrainian air defense's interception of two-caliber cruise missiles launched from the Black Sea. Our assessment on August 11th that Russian forces were testing the capabilities of the Ukrainian Territorial Guard taking over the defense of Izum was correct. Positional fighting, reconnaissance, and probing for weaknesses will continue to occur. On August 9th, Ukrainian military leaders reported the settlement of Dovenke, 15 kilometers south of Izum, had been liberated. A video from August 10th showed well-equipped Russian armored vehicles north of the settlement being destroyed by Ukrainian artillery as soon as they moved from an area of cover, indicating that fire control is established north of the town. The settlement has shown up repeatedly in reports from the general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine as being shelled by Russian forces for the last week. Based on the claims from Ukrainian military leaders, continued Russian shelling of the town, and the video evidence, we assess that the town is liberated. Elements of the 93rd Mechanized Brigade completed their battle assessment after liberating the village of Mazanivka last week. The town was defended by a battalion tactical group, or BTG, that included Russian troops and equipment from Smolensk and Voronezh, and conscripts with the DNR 1st Army Corps and the LNR 2nd Army Corps. Retreating Russian forces abandoned weapons, munitions, and equipment. Russian forces did not conduct offensive operations anywhere on the Izum axis. Ukrainian positions south of Izum, including in Dovenki, came under sporadic artillery fire. The general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine reported that Russian troops are attempting to redeploy reserves into the area to shore up the crumbling defensive line. Our assessment of the Izum axis is unchanged from August 8th. You can find it on Monday's episode around minute 18 and 51 seconds. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Looking to the Dnipro, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia region, there wasn't any significant fighting along the line of conflict west of the Dnipro River. Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery and rocket fire and launched airstrikes. Russian aviation did not venture into Ukrainian-controlled territory, 
opting to fire on positions close to the line of conflict and along the Inulets River bridgehead. There were reports of multiple explosions in Nova Khakova. Russian occupation forces deployed Czech hedgehogs in the streets of Kherson. The hedgehogs date back to the 1930s and remain an inexpensive, easy-to-make, and effective anti-tank obstacle. The appearance of the anti-tank barriers on Kherson streets indicates that Russian military leaders have moved to a defensive strategy. In another sign of worry about a looming counteroffensive, Yuri Sobolevsky, first deputy head of the Kherson Oblast Council, reported that Territorial Guard and elite Russian units were conducting raids and arrests across the city. Moving to assessment, we continue to monitor the troop deployments, maneuvers, and preparations by Russia and Ukraine both west and east of the Dnipro River. Despite paid trolls and online social media bots mocking the lack of a counteroffensive in Kherson, it is apparent that Russian military leaders are taking the threat seriously. During the last two weeks of July, Ukraine targeted Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missile sites in the Mykolaiv, Kherson, and Zaporizhia oblasts. Russian forces were using the air defense missiles to strike ground targets, focusing on the city of Mykolaiv. The number of strikes dropped dramatically in August. In our assessment, there are two reasons for this. First, the general staff of Ukraine publicly stated they were prioritizing the missile sites targeting Mykolaiv, and that campaign appears to have been a success. Secondly, Ukrainian interdiction of Russian ground lines of communication, also known as G-locks or supply lines, has likely impacted the supply of munitions. There is global concern about the risk of a nuclear disaster at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant as Russia and Ukraine continue to trade accusations of shelling at Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Ukrainian and Russian officials confirmed that the plant's offices and fire station came under fire, with 10 munitions hitting the compound. Our team can't determine if the munitions were mortars, artillery, rockets, kamikaze drones, or a combination. Russia is accusing Ukraine of firing on the plant indiscriminately, and Ukraine is accusing Russia of using the plant as barracks for 500 soldiers and a fire base where rockets from MLRS are launched across the Dnipro River. Multiple videos have shown Russian troops bivouacking in tents adjacent to buildings at the power plant, MLRS launchers located between the cooling towers, and the number one reactor shed being used as a garage for Russian armored vehicles. Pressure is mounting on Moscow to demilitarize the plant and leave the compound. Yesterday, we reported the G7 and the European Union called for Russia to turn control of the plant back over to Ukraine and to grant immediate access to inspectors with the International Atomic Energy Agency. On Thursday, the United States and China added their voices. Zhang Chun, China's permanent representative to the United Nations, said that China is, quote, deeply concerned by the recent shelling of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Zhang chaired Thursday's meeting of the Security Council, saying, quote, We call on the parties concerned to exercise restraint, act with caution, refrain from any action that may compromise nuclear safety and security, and spare no effort to minimize the possibility of accidents, end quote. A spokesperson for the United States State Department told reporters, Quote, fighting near a nuclear plant is dangerous and irresponsible. 
and we continue to call on Russia to cease all military operations at or near Ukrainian nuclear facilities and return full control to Ukraine, and support Ukrainian calls for a demilitarized zone around the nuclear power plant. End quote. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres released a statement demanding an agreement about the plant be reached, saying, quote, The facility must not be used as part of any military operation. Instead, an urgent agreement is needed at a technical level on a safe perimeter of demilitarization to ensure the safety of the area. End quote. Despite almost global agreement that Russia needs to at least yield control of the plant, Vesalina Benzia, Russia's permanent representative to the United Nations, did not support any compromise, saying, quote, Demilitarization of the station can make it vulnerable to those who want to visit it. No one knows what their goals and objectives will be. We cannot rule out any provocations, terrorist attacks on the station that we must protect. End quote. A quick editor's note. The plant was demilitarized and perfectly safe before February 24, 2022. The continued occupation of the plant isn't just due to military goals. Russia has a financial incentive to disrupt power generation at Zaporizhia. With 10 million displaced citizens and industrial production down 50%, Ukraine now generates an excess amount of electrical power. In June, Ukraine's electrical grid was connected to the European Union's, the connection has enabled Ukraine to sell excess electricity to European buyers and is on track to earn $2.5 billion a year in electricity sales. Connecting Zaporizhia to the Russian electrical grid through Crimea would cut excess electrical generation by 50%, further crippling Ukraine's economy and lengthening Western Europe's dependency on Russian natural gas. On August 9th, Russian officials said they planned to disconnect Zaporizhia and PP from the Ukrainian power grid and reroute it to Russia through Crimea. Russian forces have already destroyed three of the four power connections to the plant. Fun fact, David, the original malcontent and our editor-in-chief, was a college intern with Public Service of New Hampshire, a now-defunct power utility that owned the Seabrook nuclear power plant in New Hampshire which was never completed and led to its bankruptcy. David notes that power plants receive the electricity they need for internal operations from external sources. If the power plant has to shut down for some reason, it still has electrical power to do so safely. In a catastrophe, diesel engines or jet turbines activate automatically as a short-term solution. Running Europe's largest nuclear power plant with no redundant external electrical connection is dangerous. But back to the Zaporizhia power plant. On Thursday morning, several electrical transmission towers connecting southern Ukraine's electrical grid with Russian-occupied Crimea were destroyed in an apparent act of sabotage, thwarting plans to take the plant offline. No one has come forward to claim responsibility, and it's impossible to determine if Ukraine or Russia did this in the current climate. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called for Russian forces to demilitarize the plant and added that any nuclear accident would be considered a weapon of mass destruction attack on Ukraine. In a television address, Zelensky said, quote, I am sure that each of you has already thought about how to act if Russia uses so-called tactical nuclear weapons. Consider this, too. Russia could provoke the largest nuclear accident in history at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, 
and in terms of actual consequences, this could be even more catastrophic than Chernobyl, and in essence it's the same as Russia using nuclear weapons, but without a nuclear strike. End quote. He added that no one can control the wind, and that the growing threat of a nuclear disaster extends beyond the borders of Ukraine. Article 56 of Protocol 1 of the Geneva Convention addresses the rule of war for nuclear power plants. Nuclear power plants are not supposed to be targeted unless the power plant exclusively provides power to military facilities engaged in war, and there is a feasible way to enter the facility without causing an accident. The rules also state that offensive weapons cannot be stationed at nuclear stations. Defensive weapons to protect the plant and its workers can be deployed, but they cannot be used to launch any attacks. If a belligerent uses the grounds or facilities of a nuclear power plant to launch attacks, the protections under Article 56 are terminated, giving a belligerent being attacked the right to defend themselves. In a report by Vandalam of the IAEA, they concluded, quote, Absolute protection of civilian nuclear installations is also supported by the fact that attack on such installations is likely to cause severe losses among the civilian population. The sad experience of the Chernobyl disaster shows that pernicious consequences can occur not only in the installation state, but also in regions hundreds of kilometers apart. In other words, severe losses can be suffered not only by the belligerents, but also the civilian population of a third state. End quote. At the time of recording, Russian forces launched another barrage of rockets fired from MLRS from the grounds of the Zaporizhia NPP. Grad rockets struck Nikopol and Marinets, injuring three and damaging dozens of homes. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside of Ukraine. Multiple explanations for the explosions at Ziobrovka airfield in Belarus were given on Thursday as videos showing the blast started to appear on social media. Satellite images showed two areas burned on the airbase. It also showed that the Russian Air Force has no presence anymore. There are claims that a Russian 92N6 fire control and engagement radar, NATO codenamed Gravestone, blew up for an unknown reason. We can't verify the report's veracity in the short term, but can observe radiation scatter patterns in that area to see if they have disappeared or changed. In Copenhagen, after Rammstein 5, 26 nations, plus the 27 member states of the European Union, pledged continued long-term support for Ukraine. Members of the working group established in April have become tight-lipped on specifics of military aid. The group pledged another 1.5 billion euros in financial support and stated, quote, more was coming, without providing specifics. Danish Defense Minister Morten Butzkoff, who hosted the meeting in Copenhagen, thanked Poland, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic for, quote, signaling a willingness to expand defense production of artillery systems and munitions. Denmark and Norway committed to providing military instructors to accelerate the training of Ukrainian troops in NATO tactics and structure. According to Ukrainian officials, the three United States-made M270 guided multiple launch rocket systems, also called GMLRS, that the United Kingdom promised on Wednesday are already in Ukraine. The M270 is the big brother to the M142 GMLRS, also known as HIMARS. The 270 can fire up to 12 rockets at a time, double the capacity of the M142. 
President Zelensky admonished Dmitry Marchenko, the major general of the armed forces of Ukraine, without mentioning his name. On August 10th, Marchenko told the press, quote, Ukraine has planned to liberate Kherson and to end the active phase of the war by the end of the year, end quote. In a video address, Zelensky told his nation, quote, The general rule is simple. War is definitely not the time for vanity and loud statements. The fewer peculiar details you reveal about our defense plans, the better it will be for the implementation of those defense plans. If you want to make the big headlines, that's one thing, and frankly irresponsible. End quote. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, and the segment is thankfully quite brief. Latvia's parliament designated the Russian Federation as a state sponsor of terrorism and of committing genocide upon the Ukrainian people. The resolution states, quote, Latvia recognizes Russia's actions in Ukraine as targeted genocide against the Ukrainian people, end quote. In geopolitical news, Yuri Kot, a frequent panelist on Russia One, made the latest Russian nuclear threat against the West. He said, quote, If God forbid the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is damaged and a disaster happens, two missiles will instantly land in your decision-making centers, one in Washington and the other in London. End quote. A State Department spokesperson told the United States publication Newsweek, quote, We think provocative rhetoric regarding nuclear weapons is dangerous, adds to the risk of miscalculation, should be avoided, and we will not indulge in it. End quote. Vladimir Solovyov, the host of the Russian program The Evening with Vladimir Solovyov, came to the defense of former United States President Donald Trump. Solovyov expressed his admiration of Trump, the United States Republican political party, called the GOP, and praised Trump's support of the Russian Federation. He called the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation's raid at Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence a, quote, assault on Trump and expressed his hope the United States would plunge into civil war. Moscow talking heads openly suggested that the Biden administration would create false treason charges connecting Trump to the sale and sharing of top-secret documents and information to the Kremlin. Moving on to economic updates, the ruble was unchanged, with the official exchange rate holding at 61 rubles for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices jumped today, but continued to trade between $90 and $105 a barrel. WTI and Brent crude was up $3, with WTI closing at $94 a barrel and Brent reaching $100 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline for spot market delivery rose to $3.08 a gallon. Chicago SRW wheat futures for December 2022 delivery were unchanged at $0.80 cents a bushel. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.